In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. If you know this prayer, say it with me. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same Spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, I don't know if any of you have ever heard me give a talk like this before, but I have a really bad track record of going way longer than I intend to go. So I've got a clock in front of me. <laughs> Mostly because I get excited about what I'm talking about. So, Tonight, tonight my goal is very simple, to introduce what I'm hoping to do over the course of the coming year, over the following 13 weeks. My goal for these 13 meetings is to cover the whole faith at a level that is introductory enough that those who go through RCIA in our parishes will not feel lost, but will feel drawn in, and that those who have been practicing the faith their whole lives will, at a minimum, be reinforced in, what we, in, know, in their knowledge of what we already believe, and at best, will we'll gain some insight that might foster deeper prayer or pique curiosity to lead to greater study. Um, my plan, my plan for these, the 12 weeks that follow tonight, is to follow a pattern very similar to the pattern that the Catechism of the Catholic Church uses. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is divided into four sections. The first, what we believe, the creed. The second, how we worship, the sacraments. The third, our moral life in Christ, how we live, and the fourth, prayer, how we relate to God, how we have a relationship with God. Those, those are the basic or, or, or framework by which we can understand our whole faith. Everything that we believe, everything that affects our life, all falls under those four categories. Now, hopefully, on Sundays, Monsignor and I are offering enough, uh, enough formation about prayer that that will not be a major focus. It'll come up, but it will not be the major focus of these evening discussions. So the three major components of these Tuesday evening classes, let's call them, will be what Peter Kreeft calls creed, cult, and code. Creed, cult, and code. The reason that I want to focus on these things is that it's helpful for us as Catholics to have a framework for understanding our faith that we can use to relate or explain ourselves to people who aren't Catholic, to people who do not share our faith. And Peter, Peter Kreeft comes up with these three categories, creed, cult, and code, in his book, Fundamentals of the Faith, which 
is a great book. I'd recommend it to any of you. But in that book, his, the first part of that book, his goal is to set Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world by comparing and contrasting them. And he gives creed, cult, and code as categories that can be used to understand any faith. They could be used to understand Islam, Judaism, Buddhism. Any true religion can be thought of in these three categories, creed, cult, and code. So what are these? Creed is a matter of what we believe. What we believe about the universe, what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves. Creed expresses the way we see things. It's, in a sense, our lens. Now, for us Catholics, we have at least three, I know there are more than that, but at least three creeds that we might go to for our for our for an entree into this category. We have the Nicene Creed, which is the one that we say at every Mass. The Nicene Creed was was established as the creed of the church at the Nicene Council. And then it was polished a little bit about a little less than a hundred years later at the Council of Constantinople. That was in the fourth century. So we've been praying with that creed for some 1,600 years. And that creed is the one that I will use in the first few classes to go through the Trinity, what we believe about, uh, about who Jesus Christ is, to, be, to go through what we believe about the church, about scripture. The creed hits the, broad, the major theological doctrines of our faith. Who is God and who are we? The creed also, we might, in, the, in Peter Kreef's category of creed, we might also uh, put under that scripture. Now, scripture is not a creed, but it is a, a collection of writings that express what we believe about ourselves, about the world, about God. And so the the creed section will be focusing on these doctrines and, and trying to understand them. Now, an, an interesting point or an interesting detail that you may or may not have known, no matter how long you've been a Catholic, is that in the Catholic Church, we the Catholic Church is perceived as having lots and lots and lots of dogma. And there's truth in this. Right? There's a lot that we have to know about God, about the church. There is. But what you might not know is that what the church has defined dogmatically, she has done so in response to confusion. She's done so in response to error. So when the church has defined things that we have to believe as Catholics, those definitions usually take a negative form. How many of you, raise your hand if you've heard the term anathema before. I saw some hands, but not even half. Um, anathema, anathema is a term that was used 
really for in almost every council of the church when the church was being very clear what we're about to say or what we've just said is dogmatic it's church dividing it's it's definitive this is what we must believe as a catholic so let me let me give an example an example of how the church would do this take for example one of the early doctrines that we'll go into later one of the early doctrines that we that the church defined was whether or not Jesus Christ was both God and man. There were many who claimed that he was only God and others who claimed that he was only man, perhaps the greatest of men, but still not God. The church, the way the church defined the dogma of of Christ's divinity and humanity, what's called uh, the, the hypostatic union, technical term, if you've never heard it before, don't worry. It just means union in one person. Because Jesus Christ, while being both God and man, is only one person, not two. So union within one person. A hypostasis is the Greek word for person. Uh, so hypostatic union means union of one person. Well, the way the church defined this is that the church said anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is not fully man, let him be anathema. In other words, let him be separated from the church by that belief. That these beliefs, that the, these dogmas are dividing. They, they, they mark the line between what we believe and what we do not. Then the church also, in that same breath, said, whoever believes that Jesus Christ is not God fully, let him be anathema. So the church defines her teaching negatively. Okay, enough about creed. Cult. What is cult? When we think of cult, we think of uh, mass suicides. We think of drinking the Kool-Aid. We think of getting involved in all kinds of kind of creepy stuff. And that's not what I'm talking about <laughs> when I use the word cult. Cult just means manner of worship, cultus. The, the cult of all the different pagan gods were spoken of long before Christianity arose. They, there was a cult of Mithra. There was a cult of Athena, a cult of Zeus. It was just a pattern of behavior directed toward the worship of a certain God. So cult simply means the way we worship. Now, what I want to be sure to touch on, what I absolutely want to make sure I cover when I discuss the cult of the church are the sacraments, the seven sacraments, because perhaps some of you are familiar with this. The definition of a sacrament is an outward sign of an inward change instituted by Christ to give grace. We received these seven sacraments from Jesus Christ himself. They are the means by which we are made holy and the purpose of our holiness, the purpose of our holiness is to glorify God. 
we might actually say that the meaning of holiness, what it means for a person to be holy, is not principally about virtue or about time spent in church or about any visible thing, nearly so much as it is about their total dedication to God. Now, those visible things are are a visible sign of that inward orientation toward God. The seven sacraments, receiving those seven sacraments, participating in, in those sacraments that we receive regularly on a frequent basis, that those are signs of that inward orientation of our souls. But holiness really consists in that inner disposition, much more than these, than these visible signs. So the, the cult is a matter of, of worship, and we, we worship God through the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Holy Communion, Holy Eucharist, through the sacraments of healing, reconciliation, and anointing of the sick, and through the sacraments that we might say of mission, marriage, and holy orders. All of those, even the sacraments of healing, are directed toward the right worship of God. They're directed toward being in right relationship with God. So we'll we'll cover the seven sacraments, uh, hopefully in, in some significant depth. In that section, that that cult portion of these lectures, I also want to address the cult of the saints. Now, I just told you that cult is all about worship. And one of the accusations leveled against Catholics by Protestants is that we worship Mary, that we worship the saints. This is false. We don't. We use the word cult to refer to our veneration of the saints because... The cult of the saints, the veneration of the saints, our relationships with the saints, our prayers to the saints, is all still directed toward God. So cult is rightly used to describe our relationship with the saints because our relationship with the saints is directed toward God. And cult, worship, is always directed toward God. So as we discuss that, and hopefully throughout these, these talks, In case you haven't picked up on it, I haven't written all of them yet. But the, hopefully I will bring in saints throughout because the saints give us so much access to God and and are the the most shining images of of the life of the church. But I want to be sure to talk about our veneration of the saints as a practice as a habit, as a, as a discipline that, that helps us to grow in holiness, that helps us to worship God. Okay, and then, then the last major section of, of, the, of this course, let's call it, will be the code. Now, as we were talking as a staff about how this would, look, how this would be structured, I really would love to do this over the course of two years. Because one could easily spend a year, a lifetime, 
studying the church's moral teaching. Sexual morality, Catholic social teaching, and, and so many more specifically nuanced fields. And end of life teaching, um, the dignity of the human person. I'm, there's so much to know in Catholic morality. But um, for this first year, we're only going to do this in one year. So I hope to spend about half of our time, probably five to six talks, on Christian morality. Um, Christian morality is, is rather important, not only because there's so much to know, but also because today it's the most disputed part of our faith. You may not know this, you may, but in the first, say, thousand years of the life of the church, the most disputed questions were highly theological ones. Questions like whether or not Mary is rightly called the mother of God or, only, or if she would better be called the mother of Jesus or the mother of Christ. Some heretics, they weren't heretics at the time they put this forward, but they were condemned as heretics, rejected. Remember, the church teaches negatively by rejecting error. Some heretics believed that the best title we can give Mary is Christotokos or Christ-bearer. Because she is the mother of Christ's humanity, but in no sense can we call her the mother of Christ's divinity. And you can see how this is attractive. How could it be that a human being created by God can rightly be called the mother of God? Right? This, this error is very attractive, very appealing, and yet it is clearly an error. The church has taught that subsequent to this error, that no, Mary is in fact Theotokos, God-bearer, because Jesus Christ is one person, and Mary is his mother. And so Mary is the mother of all that Christ is. Not that Christ's divinity came from Mary, but that she is truly his mother. How did I get there? <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. The first thousand years were disputations, I mean armed conflicts, about that kind of question. That kind of question led to riots. That, that particular question was settled, settled at the Council of Ephesus. And when it became public knowledge that the council had declared that Mary was Theotokos, the whole city rejoiced through a party. Can you imagine us doing that today? No. But that's not to say there isn't heated contention within the church. We just pay more attention to practical questions, questions that directly affect how we live, much more than we do questions of who God is or what God is. The, so all of this is to say that it's very important that we talk about the code 
of our church, the law, the morality, how we live in some depth, because this is where we are going to find the most opposition. And maybe even, maybe I should even step back one step from that. This is where we ourselves are most likely to find difficulty with the church's teaching. So I, I hope to spend a significant amount of time talking about the moral code of the church. Now, that's the broad outline for these next 12 classes. I want to do two more things. I want to first give you a, a brief description of, of how each evening will be structured. And then I want, depending on time, I want to give you an exhortation, let's call it, as to why you should be here. Now, you're here. Maybe you don't need to hear it. <laughs> but I'd like to encourage you and, and, and give you what we call in the Navy a bravo Zulu, a, a well done, good job for being here. It's really important. So, structure of each evening. Tonight was an exception because tonight, this, for those of you who, who didn't catch this in the introductions to it, what we're doing tonight is designed for the parish, for all of you. But it will be an integral part of the formation for those who are going through RCIA, Rite of Christian Initiation of, the, of Adults, those who are coming into the church. I'm tempted to call them out, but I won't tonight. Um, I won't embarrass them tonight, probably another night. Um, but this is designed for all of you. So tonight we started at 7.30. Ordinarily we'll start at 7. My goal will be to talk for an hour, give you an hour's worth of content. And then the last half hour will be up to you for questions and answers. And if we use all of that time, wonderful. And if we use five minutes of it, that's fine with me too. You have my time until 8.30 and, and you can make what use of it if you want. M what use of it you want, okay? Um, so I, I will try not to go past 8 in my talk, but like I said, I habitually go long. I, I gave a talk on, on evolution in my last parish uh, to young adults and I had my outline in front of me and I thought that, this, that it would take me about 20 minutes to get through the outline. Well, I, I finished about an hour and 20 minutes later. <laughs> um, so that's what the structure of each evening will be. Uh, we do have one evening scheduled that will be entirely dedicated to your questions, and, and I'm going to make a push uh, announcing it again, trying to draw in more people who are not here on a regular basis, that that'll be a time for whatever questions you have about our faith. Um, so then, uh, let me stop there and, and open the floor for questions now. Anybody have questions about what I've said, what I'm planning to do? Uh, please. Yes, I do plan on recording them. Um, I am still discussing with a couple people whether or not we will actually post them. But the, tonight's talk is being recorded. 
Uh, so yes, they will be recorded. And probably I will post them on the parish website, but I'm not yet sure. <laughs> Good question. Uh, I hadn't planned on it, but don't, don't, uh, don't be bashful. If, if you'd like me to hear your confession afterward, please come up to me and ask. I, will, I am always available in that sense for confession. Always. Yes, thank you. Um, that's a great reminder. I had, I had meant to mention that. I don't know if you've spent much time reading the catechism. I have. I don't encourage reading it for more than 15 or 20 minutes at a time. Probably because I'm not sure it's possible to read it for more than 15 or 20 minutes at a time. <laughs> because you'll fall asleep. But I do strongly encourage you to get a copy of the catechism and if you, if you are comfortable reading things online or would rather not spend the money, and I think they can be found for under $10, um, you can find the whole thing online. And I would encourage you as you go through this, as, as we go through this course, to, to read a couple of pages a day. Probably would take you 15 or 20 minutes to read two to three pages. And I think that will in addition to what I'm saying, what I intend to talk about, that will prompt questions that you might have as well. So, thank you for that question. I absolutely recommend that you read through the catechism uh, as we go through this. Mm -hmm. um, I'll let you know, but at this point, I would say no. At, at this point, I am planning to just talk. Um, to, to tell you what I want to communicate and not make a lot of references. I find that when you're trying to turn back and forth and listen to a speaker at the same time, it's ultimately ineffective. Uh, yeah, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Part of, the reason, part of the reason that I don't, uh, part of the reason that I don't is one of the last things I wanted to do, and, and so you've given me a perfect um, entree for this. One of the things I wanted to do, I brought a, around, I brought a few pads of paper. Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity tonight to write down any questions that you might have that you hope I'm sure to cover over the course of these 12 weeks. Uh, in case you can't tell, this is my first time doing this. Um, and I'm very excited to be doing it, but I want to tailor it to what you want. Um, so let me, let, me, let me hand these out, and if you'd just pass them around, and if you'd write questions uh, on these, um, that would be great. But if I do come up with an outline, I will be sure to send it out. I will, I will give it out. Um, it, the other, the other part of why I don't have a, a concrete outline is I think I'm starting with, I, I'm going through this in the order of the catechism, but my, my choice to do that is not simply because that's the order the catechism's written in. It's because the, the questions of morality, the difficult questions for ourselves and for, uh, for those 
who might ask questions of us about Catholicism, those questions can't really be satisfactorily answered without a robust understanding of who God is, who we are, at what we believe, and how we worship. Um, and, and so I, I want to be sure to get through the creed and the sacraments. And I'm, because I haven't done this before, I'm not 100% sure how long that will take. But if, if, you, if you kind of assume I'm hoping to spend three weeks on the creed, three classes on the creed, three classes on the sacraments, and six classes on Christian morality, that's roughly the outline I have in mind. Other questions? Great. Oh, yeah, please. Um, it's also pretty deep. <laughs> uh, what I actually find, it's a little outdated. Some of its images are outdated. But what I find, a catechism that I find really more accessible than the catechism of the Catholic Church or than Fundamentals of the Faith um, is The Faith Explained by Leo Trez, T-R-E-S-E. -E. He uses some images that are so compelling. Let me give you an example. He, he takes up the question very early on in the book, um, what heaven is like because heaven is certainly an absolutely essential part of why we care about any of our faith right why does this matter well part of it part of it is certainly because something comes after death and in reference to the popular tv show we'd rather go to the good place than the bad place I don't know if you've seen The Good Place, but it's hilarious. Um, but he gives this image that heaven will be like heaven will be something like this. Imagine that a man goes off to war. The book was written in the 50s, so World War II is still large in, in the popular imagination. A man goes off to war, and his mom wanting to continue communicating with him, wanting this war not to be the ultimate definition of his life, concerned about his future after the war, comes across an article in the newspaper about a young woman his age in their hometown who does some interesting activity that is newsworthy, and she cuts out the article with the picture of this young woman and happens to know someone who knows this young woman and asks this young woman if she can give her son that young woman's address. So she sends the article and the young man is taken by her, is curious and interested. And he writes to her and she writes back. And over the course of several years of war, they, they exchange letters every month. And the letters start out somewhat perfunctory, but they grow and they grow till they're quite lengthy. And they're talking about their hopes, they're talking about their faith, they're talking about their family life. 
They, they've begun to really know one another, and yet they've never fully met. We might even say they've begun to really love one another. And finally the war is over, and he comes home. Heaven, heaven will be like that first meeting when they're longing to meet one another, when they have this profound anticipation of the joy that they will share with one another because of the love that has grown over these years. Only it's not just one moment. It's all eternity. That's from Leo Trez's uh, book, The Faith Explained. I, I strongly recommend that one. I think that's a pretty accessible uh, catechism. Um, I saw a question in the back. Oh, T-R-E-S-E. Trez, T-R-E-S-E. Any other questions? Great. That actually gives me more time than I feared I would have. Um, enough time, I think, to really do justice to the question, why should we do this? Why should we be here? I think basically there are two parts of the answer to that question, two sides. One is interior. The other is, is directed outward. Let me start with the interior, what I think is more important. Prayer is the way by the means by which we have a relationship with God. Prayer is, has been described as conversation with God, speaking with God heart to heart. St. John Vianney tells the story of a parishioner of his who would just sit in the church and look at the tabernacle for hours. And he asked this parishioner, what do you do when you sit in the church all day? And this parishioner said with utter simplicity, I look at the good God and the good God looks at me. Prayer is just resting in the presence of God, knowing that we are loved by him and loving him in return. Prayer is really at the heart of the lived experience of our faith. But there have been all kinds of mystics, Christian and non-Christian, in the history of the world. In other words, there have been all kinds of mystics who've gone astray, who were deceived, even though they spent hours in contemplation and meditation. The only way that we can truly know God, that we can truly know the Trinity, is Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in history. He began that self-revelation in the Old Testament with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Moses and David, all the way down to Christ himself. The fullness of God's self-revelation. 
So it's really, really of the utmost importance that we know Christ as he is. But Christ was not merely a man. And so he is not limited in history the way a mere human being would be limited. He is also fully God. And as God, he established his body on earth, the church. And so it is, it is through knowing the church and what she teaches and what she holds to be true and how she prays and how she lives that we know God. What's more, if we're right about God, if the Christian worldview is true, then not only is this how we know God, it's also the only way that we can truly know ourselves. It's also the only way that we can truly know what we are. And how many of us, perhaps no one here, perhaps everyone here, but how many of those around us at a minimum suffer sadness, loneliness, depression simply because they are confused, mistaken about what they are? I can't tell you how many people I have walked with in confession, in spiritual direction, who suffer from profound depression and sadness because they're filled with self-loathing. But if what our faith tells us about humanity is true, especially if what our faith tells us about baptism is true, then no one here is justified intellectually, rationally, in feeling, in, in being depressed. We might feel depressed, that's a different issue. But no one is justified in condemning ourselves to that. And we only really know this in a robust way if we really know God. Because it is God who gives us our identity. Does that make sense? So it's vitally important that we study our faith. Because as much as we want to have a relationship with God through prayer, through acts of service, those things are really, really good. You will never find me discouraging either of those. Christ has revealed himself to us. God has made himself known to us. And the way he's done that is in history, in the church, through her teaching. I've been studying this since I was a little kid. Studying our faith. And more often than not, I'm going over things that I've already learned. Again and again and again. And even, if, even when I listen to the same recorded talk, I find something new. I had a parishioner at my last parish who loved a certain video series on the faith. So much so that he had watched it four or five times all the way through. 
And he said every time he watched it, he learned something new. So this is worthwhile, even if you know the faith pretty well. It's worth going over again and again and again for the sake of our relationship with Christ. I mean, just to give a simple analogy, those of you who are married don't cease talking to your spouse about the basics of their day, about their family of origin, just because you know the answers, just because you know their basics. No, you go over it again and again and again. You talk to them about the way they feel about those things again and again and again because you want to know the person, not just a set of facts. Well, the same is true of Christ and our study of the faith. The second reason, the second major reason why it's important that we study our faith is so that we, remember I said that the church defines her teachings negatively. The word anathema means separated. The church's teachings are points where disagreement separates us from Christ. Separates us also in the other direction from the world. Now, our goal is not to be in an ivory tower separated from the world. Not at all. Rather, our goal is to draw everyone in. But in order to draw others into our faith, to, in order to draw others to God as he is, we have to know him as he is. We have to know him as he revealed himself to us. And we have to be able to explain the difficult teachings. We have to be able to make some sense of the mystery of the Trinity. We have to be able to make some sense of the mystery of the Incarnation. We have to be able to give some defense of our belief that what looks like a piece of bread is God himself. Now those are mysteries. We will never fully comprehend them. But we do have to be, we want to be prepared to give a defense, to give some explanation of them. We live in a, in a world that is increasingly, ever increasingly secular. And I think that there are four major intellectual worldviews that are especially prominent today that are all radically opposed to Christian faith and therefore to the truth. Those are socialism or communism, scientism, nihilism, and relativism. Socialism is in error because it sees everything in terms of its material value. It's, it's godless. It doesn't see spiritual values. It doesn't see the value of the family 
as a good in itself, but only insofar as it contributes to the material good of those individuals within it. This is obviously not Christian. Scientism. Scientism is a big one, especially among people my age and younger. Scientism, and, and probably not as part of this, but at another time, I'd love to give a talk on this in itself. Scientism asserts that everything we can know, we can know through the hard sciences, through chemistry, biology, physics. But those sciences can't tell us what love is. They can't tell us what justice is. They can't tell us why some things are good and some things are evil. The church is not anti-science. No, in fact, the church has been perhaps the greatest promoter of scientific advance in history. But this error rejects the truth that there are realities that transcend the material world and therefore cannot be studied by the material sciences. The third error I mentioned is nihilism. That nothing has meaning except power and coercing people to do what you want. That the only thing that has meaning is my will over your will. Nietzsche is the father of this school of thought. And clearly this is mistaken. Because the God who became incarnate and died for us redeemed us precisely by allowing us to force our will upon him. His humility is the model for us. And the fourth, the fourth major error is relativism. The idea that there are many truths. Each of us have individual realities, individual truths. This is clearly opposed to our faith because, because our Lord gives us absolutes. Our Lord makes very clear that we have to behave. There are certain minimums for our behavior that we must follow. And we ignore them at our own peril. Now, those four errors, socialism or communism, scientism, nihilism, and relativism, are all very, very different. But at their heart, all four of them are opposed to our faith for one essential reason. They all fail to acknowledge the reality of the soul. They all fail to acknowledge the reality that we are not merely a brain or our body parts, but that we have an intellect and will that are truly free. They fail to acknowledge the fact that we have the capacity to love. And the unquenchable longing to be loved 
a longing that is so profound that it rightly defines our lives. And we know this because, not only because we experience it, but because God has revealed it to us. He has confirmed our experience by manifesting to us that we are worth his own incarnation and death. If we were merely material, why would we be worth his death? If our life ceased at death, if there were no eternal life, no afterlife, none of this would have any meaning. I would make the case that if, if there were no afterlife, our actions would be groundless. Nihilism might be correct. Relativism might be correct. Socialism might be correct. But the fact is we do have a soul. And all of our actions, all of our beliefs shape that soul in a way that is more true or more false each time we act. More reflective of the reality that God created or more strongly opposed. It is vitally important that we study our faith so that we might be so secure in our knowledge of who we are and of who God is so that we might offer hope to those who have no sense of the immortality of the soul, to those whose world is bleak because it is godless, because it is meaningless. Our study of our faith helps us to see the meaning that God has created in all things. Make sense? Now are there any questions? That's all I wanted to say. Okay, not seeing any hands, I would ask you to join me in praying to our patroness, Our Lady, and then I'll give you a blessing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you all. <laughs>